you almost never regret getting the extra hour. It's the one where they where they take the hour from you, where you're like like you were talking about in the spring, where you really uh, where you really get screwed. You get you almost you know there's no there's no way getting the extra hour can go wrong for you, right? I don't think so. I would sign up for daylight savings time all the time. I don't need to change, and I would be perfectly much happier with daylight savings year round than with standard time year round. I thought you were talking about you would sign up for daylight savings all the time, as in like any time on a Monday when you want to sleep in for one more hour, <laughs> you'd be like, oh, it's daylight savings. I don't have to be at work till nine today. Uh, especially on uh, these 16 Mondays of the season, right? Where uh, we're starting recording uh, right around 11 p.m. Central Time, and uh, my job is done sometime around 2. <laughs> Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, the twice-weekly show about the largest division of college football, and we welcome you to podcast number 256, the one with the top 25 on fire. It's the podcast for November 4th of 2019. I'm Pat Coleman, the executive editor of D3Football.com. And I'm Keith McMillan, the co-host, long-time columnist, former player, and yin to Pat's yang? Probably. I don't know if you're the yin or the yang, but definitely uh, someone who balances my energy. But we definitely appreciate uh, everybody downloading and uh, tuning us in here as we uh, talk about week nine of the NCAA Division Three season. Let's see. You know, it started off the day with... Uh, the two shortest named teams in Division Three football going to an extra long game. And then we had a uh, battle of unbeatens. And then we had a surprise that you couldn't even see because no one was going to pay to watch a 12 to 12 game. Uh, and, you know, you get uh, another uh, overtime game that is uh, has a conference title on the line. And then we get all the way to the end of the night. And we've got uh, Chapman and Pomona Pitzer threatening to make things even crazier week nine was pretty fun yeah and and you know we love it this time of year because everything there are always conference titles on the line there are always playoff bids starting to come into focus the pool c picture starts to come into focus and the top 25 usually will have teams um you know clashing at the top but i don't think we saw st john's you know, fall into to Concordia Moorhead. There was a time during the season where we thought Concordia Moorhead was going to cause a ripple. Uh, you know, had played so many big games um, from Whitewater to St. Thomas to Bethel earlier in the season that we thought that maybe they'd have a chance. And then we've kind of written them off, and and they came in and, and knocked off one of the uh, one of the top five teams in the country. I think everyone was was excited about or or on board for Ithaca being a top ten team, and they certainly. Uh, didn't look like it on Saturday, or and and probably a lot of that credit goes to Union, which which fairly well dominated. And then you had um, you had Platteville and Oshkosh going back and forth, and Oshkosh getting the best of that one. And then you had the other big game in New York where Brockport rallies from down 23-0, comes back and wins that game in overtime. So there were some huge matchups that had both top 25 and conference title implications or Pool C playoff implications. Yeah, we had a short period of time on Saturday afternoon where both that Platteville-Oshkosh game threatened to be an upset 
and the lacrosse whitewater game threatened to be an upset as well. One of them turned out, as you mentioned, to wrap it up and uh, put the upset or at least the unexpected or at least the team that was somewhat behind in the standings or in the rankings coming away with the victory. We will talk about all of that coming up in just a moment. We'll also welcome three teams to the 2019 NCAA Division III playoffs. But before we do that, I'd like to let you know that this edition of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by Gotta Have It. These are the guys with the uh, 3D logo fan foam wall signs. Now with six NCAA Division III schools on board, we welcome Lake Forest to the group, joining uh, you know Whitewater, Mount Union, Mary Harden, Baylor, uh, Let's see, East Texas Baptist, Johns Hopkins, I'm kind of just looking around my office at the the ones that are here, and I know Keith has a, a couple of them in his locale as well. These are the kind of things that if you were a fan of one of these schools or a fan of a school that doesn't have one and you want your school to have one, you got to jump on this at gotahaveitfanfoams.com. Yeah, and they're absolutely great products. They, they look the part. They are, um, I think, durable and re, you know reusable. You can have it up in your house. You can bring it to the game on Saturday. And, Pat, I just realized as you were talking, I, would, I had a Johns Hopkins and a Mount Union one in my room where we record the podcast. Uh, it's also where my son, who's turning 15 in December, uh, wants to hold his, uh, host his birthday party. And he already started cleaning up the the basement area so that he could host his party. And he put the uh, the fan phones in another room. So I just realized I can't actually see them right now. Oh no! You uh, should attach the fan phones to the wall, and that way he can't. Uh... Of course, you can. They're easily movable, as you said. But uh, at least they, they they would have a home, right? Yeah, and I'm obviously looking for a uh, for a Randolph making one that I could put square in the middle of uh, in the, of the basement. Here. That would be excellent. Yeah, if your school doesn't have one, if I didn't mention them uh, a couple of minutes ago, you can go to gottahaveitfanfoams.com. You know, let them know that uh, you're someone who's interested in that, and they can get the uh, process started with the school and get the licensing and all of that. If you're someone who is at the school and is interested in getting these things done, there's a couple of different ways to do it. Uh, you should go to the uh, gottahaveitfanfoams.com page and click on the uh, link that says uh, see what we can do for your school because might as well. We should have more of these on there. Or if you're a fan of Army or Navy or Air Force or North Dakota State or, you know, someone who is on your holiday shopping list is a fan of one of those schools as well, head over to gottahaveitfanfoams.com. All right, so we welcome this week to the NCAA tournament. Drum roll, please. Delaware Valley and uh, as the champions of the MAC Union as the champions of the Liberty League and SUNY Maritime as the runners up and the automatic qualifier out of the ECFC. Uh, we talked about this on the site and we talked about, it, I think, briefly in a previous podcast. I'm not going to cite a number on that one, but basically because uh, the team that leads that conference, which is Dean College, is not a full Division Three member. Uh, it goes to the second place team, and that is currently SUNY Maritime, who is uh, four and four, and could well end up four and six, and with a uh, you know within the 500 mile radius of Mount Union. Although no, I'm going to check that, and uh, Keith's going to talk for a second. Yeah, I mean there have been a few times since Division Three went to the 28 team and then the 32 team playoff system where automatic bids are given out to to conference champions 
where there have been a few times where we've had a, a team that did not have a very great season happen to win its conference. St. Lawrence was 5-5 five and five one time. We've had a handful of 6-4 and four teams. Those teams traditionally get sent to Mountain Union uh, in the first round or somewhere like that. And I imagine for SUNY Maritime, um, there is a pretty rough first-round matchup in their future. Um, Dean, the other team uh, who you mentioned is uh, is leading the ECFC um, but is uh, transitioning into D3 and not playoff eligible yet. They lost their first four games against Nichols, Western Connecticut, Salve, Regina, and Kane, and they've won four straight in the ECFC. So even if they made the playoffs and they have just one game left against Castleton, uh, and they're coming off a 50-46 win, by the way, on Saturday. Uh, even if they made the playoffs, they would be uh, they'd be above 500. But of course, they're not eligible, and so SUNY Maritime is uh, is going to take that spot. SUNY Maritime finishes with Alfred State and Mount St. Joseph Union. We'll talk about them a little bit more coming up in just a moment. Delaware Valley. Uh, we'll talk about them a little bit later in the podcast as well. Want to go back to the St. John's game though for a second, Keith, and then. You know, I just want to pull out something that we talked about on pod 252. I did keep track for that one. St. John's kicking game is really struggling right now. And, you know, you need at the the point in the season or at the point uh, in a program when you want to be a team that's going to go to the national championship game, which is what I guess we think a number two team would do based on the bracket or depending on the bracket, you're going to need to make your extra points. You're going to need to be able to make a, a short field goal, a 30 yard field goal or something. If the, uh, you know, if the opportunity presents itself, you can't be leaving points out on the field. I'm going to step back out of the way back machine uh, now after that. But uh, I expected Keith, that this was going to be something that was going to come back to bite St. John's maybe in the national quarterfinals or even the second round of the playoffs, not in week nine. Well, I did come back to, to block, to, to block them, to uh, bite them in that uh, St. John's had a point after attempt blocked after their first touchdown. So they had a six zero lead and they fell behind seven, six. They had a kick blocked in overtime. So they only took an 18-12 lead instead of uh, instead of 19-12, and and then Concordia Moorhead scores on a 24-yard pass in overtime. Their kicker makes the kick, 19-18, and the Cobbers win. Uh, there was also a, a third quarter um, situation where they had they scored on a 70-yard touchdown pass, had a kick blocked. So, uh, and then not only did they get that kick blocked, but but Marshall King for Concordia Moorhead picks that one up and runs it back 98 yards. So it's a three-point swing there. When instead of uh, a instead of it being a 13-10 lead for St. John's, it's 12-12. Is that that's still a three-point swing? Yeah, seems math. Yeah, that's yeah. right. From a three-point lead to see math, the math seemed weird on that. But um, it was my understanding that there would be no math. But I also think that it's more than just that, right? Because if St. John's gets itself into a game in which it scores on a seven-play drive. Yeah, in the first quarter, not their first possession, but early enough in the game where, where um, you know they're they're starting to get things together and think maybe we're going to have a lot of success offensively that day. And then they score on a seventy-yard pass in the third quarter and don't do anything else offensively uh, the rest of the game. Three of thirteen on third downs, um, of course, plenty of plenty of passing yards for Jackson Erdman and uh, really actually a nice game. Uh, running the ball because not only did they have 225 yards rushing, but 6.3 yards per rush. 
but weren't able to turn those into points, hurt themselves with uh, with eight penalties and um, and one fumble. I, I just, you know, it definitely, you pointed it out, you called it a couple weeks ago that the kicking game was going to come back and bite them, and maybe it's better that it, that it happened now rather than two or three rounds deep into the postseason, but also a lot of blame to go around on Saturday if you can only score 12 points in regulation, you know, against a team that was coming in at uh, at at two and five. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of those made kicks or maybe just being able to prevent one of your kicks from turning into the other team's two points would have turned this game into like the game against St. Thomas in 2003, where uh, St. John's kicked a, a 35 yard field goal with eight seconds left. They won 15 to 12 against a team that at the time was three and six. And St. John's goes on to win the national championship that year. And it's just kind of an interesting blip on the schedule. We were like one point at the right time away from that being the same thing here. Yeah. And I think there are are examples of that game in the near history, right? Last week, uh, Mary Harden Baylor kicks a field goal as time runs out 15, 14, they beat Harden Simmons. And if Mary Harden Baylor goes on, to, to you know make it to the stag bowl to repeat as national champions they'll look at that game and say that game built character for us or that was the game we knew we could we could you know have some adversity and still you know, pull it out in the end or something like that like the the one point difference is the difference between calling this net this the, the narrative on this game being a slip up for St. John's or the game where you know they found a way to win in regulation even though they didn't play that well or something like that so Pat you're right that uh that, that something as simple as one made kick or one kick that's not even just, you know, you just miss the extra point and don't get it blocked and return going the other way. Um, then, yeah, you're right. You look back at this one and you go, man, it was a rough day for St. John's. But every team has one of those days along the way. Or, uh, you know, if, if you're Wesley, you have four of them, but you somehow, somehow figure out how to win them all. The uh, Ithaca Union game, we're going to talk about some of the specifics of this game a little bit later on the podcast. I want to talk about the impact, though. This is a, a spot where, obviously, a uh, the uh, automatic qualifier out of the Liberty League was on the line. And I did not, uh, although I set aside like my entire afternoon to sit down and watch that game, uh, knowing you know the impact of that game, I did not expect it to go the way it did. Uh, Union, obviously, uh, had a great... Had a great defensive game plan. Let's just skip ahead to that. Frank Rossi was there uh, for uh, in the huddle, the uh, D3 Football East Region podcast, and he sent along some uh, quotes. This is uh, after Frank asks Jeff Berman, the head coach of Union, if he was uh, surprised about the effectiveness of the game plan. I'm not surprised at all. Um, I, I, you know, credit to Ithaca College. Uh, I mean, an unbelievable program. Dan does a tremendous job. I mean, you watch these guys on film. I mean, they are they're a machine offensively, defensively. They they just do such a great job. You know, I I, I just I had a lot of faith and belief in our players and I in our coaching staff and. I thought we, we were able to put good plans together, and more importantly, the players were able to execute it when we needed to. There were still times when we didn't maybe play at our A game uh, and took the and, and, and didn't execute the way we needed to, but I think for the most part, they did what they needed to do. Spoke with 
uh, Paul and with uh, Evan, uh, Paul Chambers, Evan Gilland, and they each had about 10 tackles uh, today. But their senior leadership seems to be so key right now. The senior leadership on both sides of the ball, how much have you relied on that to carry you guys forward to this point? A lot. You know, now that we're in year four, I, you know, the guys that are seniors now, um, they've been in the program long enough to know how we want things done. And, uh, and I think the accountability part from senior leadership down through the underclassmen has been as good as it's been uh, in the program since I've been there. So I, I feel it just keeps guys in line and make sure that we're focused on what we need to focus on. I keep asking this question. I, I hate to be the Debbie Downer type right now, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I, I bring up in 2006, Uni had clinched the game before uh, the Dutchman Shoes game, mm -hmm. and they lost that game at RPI uh, that year. You've got two games left right, right. now, Utica and RPI, both games matter for seeding purposes because uh, the committee probably is going to try to take knocks at you with strength of schedule mm -hmm. things and whatnot. How do you get this team now to focus in on these two games? Maybe the shoes game is a little bit easier because of what's on the line there, but both of these games, how do you get them to focus? Yeah, I mean, I'm already thinking about Utica, to be honest with you. I have it, uh, the film downloaded on my iPad. I'll be watching it on the way home already. I'm not going to waste any time. Um, look, I want them to enjoy this one for oh, yeah. sure tonight. But tomorrow, I, I told them in the team, the team huddle today is, uh, you know, when you wake up tomorrow, put some, uh, put some, some, uh, some, some air in your lungs and uh, exhale and get ready to come to work because tomorrow's a work day and they know it's on the line. So I think, I think again with that senior leadership that we have, I, I, I believe that they will, they will do what they need to do and, and uh, you know, we'll probably uh, practice very similar to how we did this this week, which uh, for us it was less was more. Uh, we didn't practice on a Sunday. We only went pads one day. We, we just wanted to be fresh for the game, and I knew it was going to be physical. Ithaca is gorgeous, also very windy on Saturday after the game. But, uh, you know, just a, a really impressive performance uh, for Union to come in, clinch a bid to the playoffs for the first time since 06. Well, definitely, they, and they've been impressive uh, all season and really going back uh, to last season where the program started to get back on the map. I, th I mean, it was certainly a surprise. I had union ranked uh, coming into the, to the week, but I didn't see a, I wouldn't even say thoroughly dominating win, right? Because they gave up 497 yards of total offense and uh, Ithaca was, was sort of in striking distance. But I think there was a, there were a couple of points in the fourth quarter where, uh, where EK Airbor scores, uh, they go up by 10, they give up a touchdown, then, then he scores again, they go up by 10 again, and then they're able to, um, you know, to kill the clock on Ithaca. I, I thought just that, you know, when your team plays its best football in the fourth quarter, when your team's able to, you know, take a couple of shots. I mean, I think if you, you, if you thought, if you had to sketch this game out coming in, you'd think maybe both teams in the 30s, high 20s, and it was going to be a real big back-and-forth game, but it was actually a pretty – well-played defensive game for, for most of the, the way. And, uh, you know, even though you look at the total numbers at the end and you see both teams, you know, Ithaca pushing 500 yards and, and Union at four, uh, 417 with, uh, with 200 yards, 223 yards rushing, a nice running day for them. I think it still felt like it was a well-played game defensively and certainly the, the couple of interceptions for Union really helped. Moving on to another game. Here's another kick that was pretty big at the end of regulation. There may even be some fans for MIT and the bleachers closing their eyes here. Pretty tense moment as Wright looking to tie this game up with one second to go. And the snap, the hold, the kick. 
And it's, it's good. good. It's good. It barely made it through. Oh my me? goodness! Just barely making it over the crossbar. That's MIT Athletics broadcast. Uh, Mark Wright kicking a 41-yard field goal on the final play of regulation. And then uh, MIT goes on to win it in overtime. Keith and Shepard uh, pulls down a touchdown pass in the back of the end zone, gets a foot down somehow. Can't tell from you know any highlight that we've seen because it is so far away and apparently just on one camera. But MIT beats WPI for the first time since 1900, and that is WPI's first loss of the season. And I think, you know, if you listen to us on Friday, you knew we talked about some situations where teams, there'll be some surprises, um, but it's hard to tell where they were going to come. And uh, there, there are always going to be, you know, five win, four win, six win teams that are going at a team that's unbeaten. And uh, from afar, you just assume the unbeaten team is going to win again, but it, uh, but it's not quite that easy. Um, usually these, you know, a team like MIT might be actually, either playing its best game or be a pretty good matchup for WPI. And I thought, um, you know, obviously that catch in the back of the end zone is tremendous ball. You know, it's one of those ones where the quarterback knows probably right out, right when he comes off the line, uh, Shepard does, he knows he's going up top in, in the corner of the end zone. He's just going to throw it to a spot and let the guy go get it. And then two defenders are converging as Shepard goes up for the catch. He, he's, he catches it. And then they both hit him, and, and their momentum is sort of pushing him out of the back of the end zone, and somehow his foot gets down. It's clearly uh, um, a touchdown. Great catch, great way to to end the game for MIT. And for WPI, I think, I, you know, I mean, tremendously disappointing in the sense that, um, you know, they had a chance to to remain undefeated, to lock up their playoff spot, and now they're at the top of the conference with Springfield and MIT tied three ways and uh we're gonna have to see how that shakes out because all three of those teams right now have beaten each other we uh narrowly avoided the potential of a three-way tie in the skyac uh under the lights out west uh, nathan parkin grabbed three interceptions the last of them with uh just under a minute to go uh this was a uh this was one of those announcerless highlight games i didn't bother to uh, record this one not only announcerless but the uh, the clinching interception was in the back corner of the end zone that was unable to be seen by the camera. Just a, a you know a typical example of Division Three broadcasting. Uh, Chapman scored, tw- uh, jumped out to a twenty to seven lead at the half, and then had to kind of work its way back into it and held on to uh, remain unbeaten. That is a, again a similar type of game where I know you talked to a lot of Skyac people, and I expect that I'm, we're going to hear about what people thought about Pomona Pitzer coming into the season. Well, if you want me to, to mention it, yeah, I think they thought that that team would be able to score, but that they you know didn't have their best, their most talented players uh, lined up on defense. And so a lot of those games would be uh, shootouts. And you know, it's turned out to be, I think some games have been like that. And this one wasn't really a shootout. Uh, you know, 26-21, Chapman fi- you know, figures out a, a way to win that one. But uh, Chapman leading that one 20-7 at the half. And it, and it became, I guess, not a shootout. But certainly with, uh, with Carter Oderman and, uh, and Pomona Pitts are taking the lead late in that one. Chapman had to, to dig deep, get the lead back at the end of the third quarter and then hang on in a scoreless fourth quarter uh, for, for a win. So Chapman seven and zero, 
uh, in really great shape in the West because of uh, their win over Whitworth and the, the Redlands win over Linfield. Chapman's in, in great shape. You know, if they if they finish this thing out to uh, to host a playoff game in uh, in California, which we have not seen very often in the postseason. Yeah. And at this rate, the way things have gone elsewhere in the West, maybe two. Who knows? Uh, so that is uh, another thing to keep an eye on. Chapman has the opportunity to wrap up its conference championship coming up here over the course of the final couple of weeks so that game was not a shootout and there were a bunch of games that were not shootouts but we had uh some certainly some high scoring games on saturday it always seems to me that uh the 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 point totals get higher near the end of the season mary harden baylor beating louisiana college 82 to nothing uh, north central beating elmhurst 82 to 7 you've got of course uh, harden simmons putting up 91 on mcmurray it's crosstown rival in a 91 29 win um, and i've been trying to figure out if the reason why i perceive it that way is something that's legit or if i'm just projecting what i see i guess I mean, I feel like there's a game like that every week or every couple of weeks where there's a team gets into the high 70s. You see them in the 80s and occasionally you tap tap 90. Um, Linfield scored 77 a couple times this season. We've seen some other high numbers. I think the surprising thing about about the ones this week is they came against uh, legitimate D3 programs. All, all teams that are having rough years, no doubt, but but not like – Brand new startup programs, Elmhurst, McMurray, and um, Louisiana College are all teams that have been pretty good in the time we've been been doing uh, D3Football.com. Have had good seasons, uh, sometimes great seasons, and you know mostly middle of the road. I guess McMurray hasn't been great good for a while now, but you just don't expect to see um, not also Rams, you know, put give give up those kind of numbers, and, and then. You know, this, the thing that's been happening to, to Capital this season where they've been just uh, downright bad and, and for them to have uh, have had given up the 90 spot to John Carroll and, and not put up any points a few weeks ago. You know, we talk about that all the time. But I think within any group of 247 teams, you're going to have a disparity. You're going to have teams where, where uh, they have bad weeks. And I think within those bad games, you know, sometimes the difference between a, a 45-0 and a, and a 77 – it is, you know, a team not packing it in or another team coming off the gas a little bit. And, and I think sometimes for these really elite teams um, that are stocked with talent and go two, three deep, and especially if they're at home and they have the whole entire roster there, I think it's hard for them sometimes to come off the gas because their twos and threes are sometimes pretty good. I was uh, curious enough about this to go back and look at the average margin of victory for each week of the Division Three regular season so far, and it's been amazingly consistent. Uh, the lowest average margin of victory is 19.6 points per game, and uh, that was in Week 2, and the highest was 23.5 back in Week 7. This week it was only 21.96, but that basically means that, especially for those of you who follow the uh, d3boards.com vernacular, that the average Division three football game is a monkey stomp. Three touchdown margin of victory. Yeah, I, I remember. I just wanted to let that air out a little bit. <laughs> I, I know you knew. I wanted to make sure everybody else did. And I should correct myself from earlier um, in, the, uh, in the new Mac because Springfield and MIT – 
have yet to play. They'll play in week 11. So uh, there's a three-way tie currently at the top of that conference, but it won't finish that way. Yeah, but it could end up that way in the SAA. And we uh, detailed a couple of other places where the uh, conference uh, looks pretty fun. We will talk more about that uh, sort of thing in podcast 257. Game ball. Game ball. It's time for game balls. game balls. And my game ball is going game to IK Irabor. Irabor ran for 181 yards and three touchdowns for Union in that win at Ithaca on Saturday. In addition, those 4.8 yards a carry were a key part of Union's ability to control the clock. The Dutchman held the ball for 36 minutes, 44 seconds, and it makes it easier to beat Ithaca, obviously, if you can keep the ball out of Joe Germanario's hands. So late in the game, with Ithaca having cut the lead to three with three minutes left, and Union trying to run out the clock Irabor takes a handoff on second and 12 and then he cuts right gets around the defense and it's as if the Ithaca defense was trying to defend fourth and inches because once Irabor gets to the outside he is gone and 46 yards later he's in the end zone giving Union a 31-21 lead with under two and a half minutes left Frank Rossi asked if Irabor was surprised that he broke that run to be honest, nah, because I, I knew it was gonna I knew I was gonna break on one of these days with one of these plays, bro. Because like they they're just flying up the field and I'm bouncing them outside. He's no the one's gonna, no gonna catch me. No one's gonna catch me after that. That's Andre Ross Jr., his teammate at wide receiver, chiming in at the end. Big game and game ball to EK Irabor. Yeah, it looked like one of the, the Ithaca defenders got caught up in the in the trash there as they as they say, and once he he ran into somebody in his his pursuit sideways uh airboard turned the corner and it was it was over on that run nobody was out on brockport faster than i was at the start of the season but i have to say i've been back in on them for a couple of weeks and uh this comeback down from 23-0 against Cortland uh, shows that this is a new team with new leaders new heart and probably the empire eights playoff spot and buried within all that was a game ball worthy feel-good story Jason Helwig started the season as Brockport's replacement for Joe Germanario, but he threw four picks in the 33-7 loss to Hobart and gave way to Freddie June as the starter. Helwig got the start in a 38-0 win over Hartwick in the game June missed, but otherwise he'd been relegated to afterthought, which was true through three quarters against Cortland on Saturday. He'd been the Golden Eagles punter, and after June left the game abruptly, Helwig's first pass was a third down interception early in the fourth quarter. His next three passes fell incomplete as Brockport, trailing by six, went three and out, burning a Golden Eagles possession at a point in the game where they weren't going to have many more. But Brockport's defense gets him the ball back, and this time he did something with it, following a three-yard run with a 36-yard completion to Imhotep Cromer, a 10-yard run, and one play later, Brockport scores the tying touchdown. Cortland amazingly blocks the PAT. Brockport misses a 32-yard game-winning field goal attempt, and after Brett Sagala threw a pick for Cortland in overtime, Helwig, on the third play, keeps it himself and dives in for the winning score from 11 yards out. I saw the play before we probably would have scored, actually, but the backside defender came around and uh, tackled Jolet in the back. We only gained one yard, and coach called in a zone read the next play, and I pretty much knew before the play I was going to keep it because how hard the guy had come crashing in. So I, as soon as I saw the wide open space, I knew we were home free with a victory on the road. It wasn't the most impressive performance or stat line across D3 on Saturday, but a senior who gets benched can easily check out or quit the team. Instead, Helwick has been there to lift Brockport when needed, even if Freddie June is the man. And I think winning teams and programs need the former as much as the latter. You just can't win without guys who are dedicated to the program and waiting their turn as much as the star players are. That's the glue. That's the foundation. And if you think I'm overdoing it by giving Helwig a game ball, maybe I am. 
But I just think that's indicative of how Brockport has been this season. It's been ugly at times, but they never folded. And it had to be gratifying for those around the Golden Eagles program to see a senior quarterback who didn't leave the program score the game winner to upset Cortland on Saturday. Me and Freddie are very close. I mean, we've been going, like, I think like the past three or four games, we've been going back and forth. I know the Harvard game he didn't play, and then the Utica game, he came out, he was banged up at halftime, and same thing today. So if he gets the win, I congratulate him, and if I get the win, he congratulates me. So we're just here more for the W's than individual awards. My team on the rise in the D3Football.com top 25 and on my ballot is Bridgewater. I ended up giving Bridgewater the spot I had been giving to Cortland, and it was the first time that I had changed any of the 25 teams I was voting for. It's one of those spots in the bottom five, but Bridgewater seems as qualified as anyone else. Uh, a non-conference win against Gettysburg doesn't do anything for the resume, but winning at Stevenson in Week 2 is a decent mark in anyone's favor. Uh, Stevenson's 6-2 and two right now. And, of course, Bridgewater's unbeaten, now with a 35-3 win at Emory & Henry to add to the roster. So uh, this Saturday's game against Randolph-Macon is going to determine who wins the ODAC automatic bid. But I think that uh, the 20-25 to 25 range is about right for Bridgewater. I don't see even a 10-0 ODAC team getting much higher than that without a playoff win or some really impressive non-conference win from earlier in the season. Well, my riser is Salisbury, and not so much because of this week's win against Christopher Newport. The Seagulls, who no longer have the Regents Cup rivalry game with Frostburg State because the Bobcats departed with D2, will play their next big game in the playoffs. But voters should be constantly reassessing past results, and in the wake of UW Oshkosh winning on UW Platteville's field, I let the Titans creep back into my top 25 because they have two losses to top 10 teams plus a nice win. And since we have new data on Oshkosh, Salisbury's 24-19 early season win over the Titans gives it two impressive wins, the other being Wesley. And I looked at North Central, which has a loss to Wheaton and whose most impressive win is at WashU. And I was like, why not Salisbury at six instead of North Central? So the goals leapt North Central for me just because that body of work looks more impressive than it did last time I filed a ballot. Constant reassessment means nobody just stays in their spot if the new data we get is significant. That wasn't flying. That was falling with style. Taking a fall this week in the top 25, you know, with or without style is, well, let's go back to St. John's because I think this is an interesting study in top 25 voting. It seems like a big contrast in that, you know, St. John's lost to Concordia Moorhead and Concordia Moorhead was two and five going into the game. So you have to drop St. John's. But St. John's beat Bethel. And if you still think that Bethel is better than, say, John Carroll or Wartburg, then it's hard to push Bethel any further down. And I don't see Wesley or Delaware Valley making uh, the jump above St. John's. So they're stuck there at number eight, dropping four spots without much further to go. Salisbury jumps them overall. And like Keith was just talking about, uh, that's about the one team that could do so because they are unbeaten with that win against the Wyack team. And, and the, to the handful of voters who wanted to put St. John's below Bethel, I do not understand how you ignore a head-to-head -head result that happened just a few weeks ago. When do you get to erase that? Not that, not that quickly. I mean, at the same time, we've had voters all season ignoring this Texas Lutheran Harden-Simmons result, which now, with, with Harden-Simmons having that one-point loss to, to Mary Harden-Baylor, which is a number two team in the country, you know, maybe you can you can reconcile that, but there was definitely a time where where people were just sort of looking the other way on that result. Hendricks is five and three, so it's hard to keep all of those things in line, right? No, and I think we're at the point in the season where everything is not going to triangulate or 
rectangulate or pentangulate. No making up words. Because um, you've got results that don't make sense and you've got strings where, where teams, you know, one team's beating the other, another one's beating another, and then there's this outlier result that doesn't make sense with any of the results. That's fine at this point in the season, but specifically to a head-to-head result, I feel like that should always um, trump anything else in, in your logic process if you have this very – and, two, not like a one-point head-to-head result. You're talking about a 19-0 game. So I agree totally that the Bethel win buoys St. John's even in the wake of the Concordia-Moorhead loss. I don't have John Carroll, though, anywhere near that discussion, as you mentioned, because they don't have a win over a team that's better than 500, and it's week nine. They can't fault the Blue Streaks for their loss to number one ranked Mount Union, but they haven't even played Heidelberg or Baldwin-Wallace. Their best win is 4-4 four and four Marietta by two points. I think they're overranked, and I spent a lot of time with my ballot this week going down the list of teams to see which significant teams they'd beaten, who they'd lost to, and who is left to play. I think the responsible thing to do before voting was to rejigger the New York teams. So Union shakes out atop that group because of wins over Ithaca and Hobart and no losses. But the rest of the results don't square, as we were just talking about, with Ithaca beating Hobart, Hobart beating Brockport, Brockport beating Cortland, and Cortland Ithaca still to play. It does leave the Red Dragons with their most impressive wins, though, at St. John Fisher and Alfred, which are a respectable 4-4 four and 5-3, four and and but clearly a cut below the top 25 caliber or playoff caliber. So Union, Ithaca, Brockport all had at least one really good win, but Cortland, for me, dropped from 10 on my ballot to 25 because they had a lack of a really impressive win. Brockport went from unranked to 17 for me because, again, we aren't just reacting to this past week's games. We're looking at every past game, everything in the body of work, and giving it a fresh look based on what we know now that we didn't know last week. If you're the Barry fan, and probably there are others, uh, but the Barry fan on Twitter who was asking why Barry didn't move with all the stuff that happened in the top 25 this week, there's a great example, right? Brockport goes from unranked to 17 on Keith's ballot. You know, Brockport picked up a bunch of points and probably passed Barry on a handful of ballots. You know, Platteville drops down past Barry on a bunch of ballots as well. You know, things, uh, you know, just kind of even out. Nobody in that bottom five really shuffled around much. Uh, you know, Case Western and Susquehanna and St. Thomas all nudged up one. Uh, Barry stayed in place. Linfield nudged up one. It's Redlands hopping Barry, which, you know, for whatever reason that might have happened. Not quite sure, but... Uh, that is the uh, that's the only thing that uh, changed down in that bottom half or bottom fifth of the poll. We venture a little further afield for the off the beaten path highlight, and I'm heading to the NESCAC where there was a rare night game. And frankly, you know, night games in New England in November should definitely be rare. But this one saw Bates beat Bowden 30 to five behind touchdown catches of 54 and 36 yards by Jackson Hayes. The 122nd meeting between these two rivals and the win also allowed Bates to snap a 17 game losing streak overall. Last year, it was Bowden over Bates and Bates went 0-9. Now it's Bates over Bowden and Bowden seems likely to go 0-9 this season. Uh, this is also the first head coaching win in the career of Malik Hall as well in his second season with the Bobcats. Love when we get to talk uh, the other half of the NESCAC, which is those schools way up in Maine. And I was kind of wondering why you picked that one. Makes sense now. Bates snap in the 17-game losing streak. I had a couple of off-the-beaten-path highlights, and I'll make them quick. The University of Chicago went into overtime at Monmouth and issued a game-tying point-after attempt to go for two and the win. 
It cooked up an interesting play call, too, throwing to an offensive lineman who had just come into the game. He actually made the catch, but the ball was knocked loose uh, short of the goal line, and Chicago loses in disappointing fashion. Meantime, half a country away, Randolph Macon kept alive its chances of going unbeaten in the ODAC by twice overcoming a nine-point deficit against Washington Lee in the final six and a half minutes and scoring with 39 seconds left, recovering an onside kick, and then having Chris Vidal, the same player who, who made the onside kick, jog onto the field for a 38-yard game winner, which he nailed with two seconds left. That capped a 44-point back-and-forth fourth quarter in which RMC outscored WNL 23-21 and RMC wins 36-35. Surprise! My most surprising result from Saturday comes from the MAC, where it seemed as if Miss Recordia was going to continue to remain within one game of Delaware Valley and make the Aggies wait another week or two to clinch the conference's automatic bid. That's because Miss Recordia and DelVal don't play each other, which was a problem last year until Misery lost to Lyco on the final week of the regular season. Maybe that should have made Saturday's result less surprising, but even so, the way that Lycoming beat Miss Recordia on Saturday was the most surprising part and took all the drama out of the scoreboard watching that uh, DelVal fans needed to do as Delval was uh, beating Alvernia 44 to nothing. Lyco is up 27 to 14 at the half and they scored 24 unanswered points in the second half to win 51 to 14. Warriors had a field day. I don't know, maybe it's a track day. I don't know. They ran. They ran a lot for 342 yards on 55 carries with Elijah Shimmery leading the way, 201 yards passing and two scores plus 114 yards and four touchdowns on the ground. Lycoming improves to three and five. And while it wasn't the most surprising win by a three and five uh, team on Saturday, it was the most surprising one that we haven't yet mentioned. There were bigger games in the WIAC this past week, but the most surprising was UW Stevens points, 40 to 12 win over UW Eau Claire. The Pointers and Blue Golds have identical 3-5 and five records, but back in mid-September, Eau Claire was riding high after beating a top-10 team in St. Thomas. The Tommies are no longer ranked that high, they're 18th, and the Blue Golds are just 1-4 since that game all against Wyatt competition. After beating the Tommies, Eau Claire could have looked in October with games at Whitewater, at Oshkosh, and against Platteville and figured they could pull more upsets. But even getting through the month scathed, you never hear anyone say that they're the opposite of unscathed. <laughs> yeah. Facing UW-Stevens Point was supposed to be the competition that UW-Eau Claire could handle. Instead, they got handled as Matt Ermanski threw four touchdown passes and the Pointers hauled in one most surprising result. Hot off the ticker, my stat of the week comes from the West Coast, where I haven't had a chance to pull this out for a while. Pacific and Puget Sound combined for .804 miles of total offense, or 1,416 yards, in a game which Pacific won 60-55. to Normally, this is also a time where I'd compare it to the score when the schools face off in men's basketball, but there's, there's actually a lot of up-tempo basketball played in the Northwest Conference, and Pacific won those games 101-93 and 110-101 last year. Uh, we know Puget Sound likes to throw the ball, and they did on Saturday to the tune of 5 190 yards in every shootout like this there's almost always a defensive stop somewhere right you know just one maybe it's only one but in this case Pacific did get three and outs on UPS twice in a row to start the second half and that's where the boxers were able to build up a 54 to 35 lead even with that it came down to the final minute when Puget Sound scored a touchdown with a buck 11 left failed on the two-point conversion and could not cover the onside kick but then Puget Sound forced a fumble when Pacific was trying to run out the clock, and UPS had one more chance with 55 seconds left, but could not get the job done. Pacific improves to, stop me if you've heard this before, 3-5. and five. <laughs> Murdoch Rutledge, 
the Puget Sound quarterback in that game had 639 yards of total offense, which is the best game any D3 player, of course, quarterback, has had all season, and he's also an all-name team nominee. Now, my stat of the week is courtesy of Redlands kicker Alex Rea, who hit from 56 yards in the first quarter against Cal Lutheran. There have only been nine made field goals of 50 yards or longer in D3 all season, and Rea now has two of them. The longest in D3 this year was from 58 yards out by Tim Branicky of Westminster, Missouri in week eight against Minnesota Moore. Your categories have become tiresome. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. Now is the time on the podcast where you go to Twitter. You know, on Sunday afternoons or Sunday evenings, we put out the call. We ask people to uh, message us back their questions using the D3FB hashtag. And we answer as many of them as we can on this podcast while still trying to keep it underneath an hour because that is where the focus group wants us to keep it. And this one is from Steve Thompson. That's at Steve Thompson MN, uh, which, uh, who asks, if St. Thomas beats Gustavus and Bethel, do they get an at-large bid? St. John's needs to win at Hamlin to clinch the automatic bid from the MIAC. If Bethel wins their last two, they would certainly get an at-large. And uh, I should mention that uh, Steve Thompson is a radio host on the radio station here in the uh, Twin Cities area that uh, does a pretty good job of covering all the Minnesota small college sports on Saturday. And I was just about to say, Steve, yeah, thanks for caring so much about D3 football and uh, and helping to broadcast it to uh, to folks in Minnesota. Minnesota's probably one of our, our best, if not the best, uh, combination of area where people care about D3 and really good D3 football is played. To answer the question, no, I don't think St. Thomas gets an at-large bid. I don't even think they really get into the discussion. I think the loss to Eau Claire is really what's going to hurt them because even if they get to uh, to eight and two overall, they will their best win will be Bethel, which at that point will be another eight and two team, and that's not bad, but it um, it will give them potentially one one and one record against regionally ranked opponents, and I don't think their strength of schedule will be through the roof like it sometimes is for Mayak teams. I do think Bethel at nine and one is is right atop that that list for at large bids. Yeah, I would agree. I just don't know if any two loss teams are going to get at large bids this year. Um, although, you know, obviously, uh, crazy things can happen, and you know, we saw maybe the beginnings of some of those things happen this week. Um, you know, it's just with only five at large bids. I'm pretty sure we're going to have six or seven pretty well qualified teams with one loss, and we're not going to get down to the point where we have a two loss team in consideration. Thanks for the question. Uh, next from Carlos Barba at Barba 50. Uh, would they really keep a one loss North central team out of the playoffs? I think they would, if the competition remains fierce and the Cardinals are weak on the criteria, North central's problem right now is a lack of wins over anyone else who will be regionally ranked at the end of the season. Um, I, I think though at, at nine and one, they're in, they're in pretty good shape. Yeah, I would think so, too. Obviously, it hurts them a little bit that uh, Christopher Newport uh, was not uh, nearly as competitive this year as they have been in the past. That's the one non-conference game for North Central. And uh, 
Uh, CNU is two and six, headed for probably at best three and seven. They finish at home against Rowan and then at Wesley. So it's not going to look good for them there. There's going to be, you know, obviously some of this in the North region is going to shake out. Uh, John Carroll and Baldwin Wallace are both one loss teams and they have yet to play each other. They'll do that in week 11. So I think that's just as big a conversation when we did our, you know, our little mock uh, run through the other day. You know, we didn't even really get to the point where we talked about the OAC runner up. We got to five or really six before that happened. Now, obviously, uh, Platteville has played its way out of the mix and we put North Central in in our, you know, ad hoc mock projection back uh, in pod number 255. But uh, certainly not impossible. But I think that North Central will probably be the uh, first team on the board from the North region. And, uh, you know, that's uh, that's about all you can ask. At least you have a good shot of being considered. Yeah, and I think if you want to take a, a speed look at this thing nationally, I think you would be impressed with my speed. And we'll uh, we'll take a deeper dive maybe in Friday's pod and into yeah. what the pool C picture looks like. But quickly, there are a couple of categories of games. One you just mentioned, John Carroll Baldwin Wallace uh, f- fits into this category, and I think potentially in Week Eleven, Ithaca Cortland yeah. plays into to this as well, where two teams play head to head, and the the winner gets itself into the the at-large discussion. I'm going to stop calling it Pool C for right now because it's really just Pool A and Pool C anymore because there is no Pool B. So we'll just call them automatic bids, at-large bids. I think I think the John Carroll Baldwin Wallace winner can get can play itself into discussion. If the Cortland State winner can play itself into the, the discussion. And Bethel, if it beats St. Thomas, can play itself into the discussion. Then you've got another group of teams who are kind of already uh, just kind of stuck where they are. And even if they went out, they can't make a move. That's North Central. That's Susquehanna. That is Redlands. Um, those are those are teams that are probably going to finish nine and one or uh, you know one loss behind a team that that essentially is probably going to win its conference. And and they've they've uh, they can't make a a big move. Uh, Wesley is also in that group right behind. Uh, Salisbury. And then you got another group, which I think this is the the key, the the group that you need to watch. And because this can really, really make it a, a deeper pool of of at-large potential teams. And that's places like the ARC, where you have Wartburg right now unbeaten. And if Wartburg beats Central, then they're they're fine. They're probably the only ARC team that gets discussed. They take the automatic bid and the story. But if Central somehow upsets Wartburg, Central takes the the automatic bid, and then Wartburg could drop into that group of nine and one teams. Mary Harden Baylor is in that group if, for some reason, Texas Lutheran beats them this week. And we can't, I guess, assume that it's impossible since Texas Lutheran beat Harden Simmons. Harden Simmons took Mary Harden Baylor to the wire. But I would, you know, generally assume that Mary Harden Baylor is in, in pretty good shape. So I think there are some conferences um, from top to bottom where, where they could get interesting if a result breaks a certain way and if enough of those happen then we're really going to have a deep pool of at-large teams to discuss in week 11. Our final question here in this segment comes from uh, former UW Oshkosh wide receiver Sam Mankowski. I mean he doesn't put that in his handle but uh, that's at Sam Mentos too who asks uh, who will finish one two and three in the WIAC and will the WIAC have an at-large playoff team this year? Well, We've kind of talked about the uh, at-large chances for the WIAC, uh, you know, obviously their two lost teams would be, I think, ahead of St. Thomas. But uh, that's, you know, putting still pretty far down the list. Uh, the key games left 
Keith, in terms of first, second, and third place, are really, uh, you know, Whitewater finishes the season at Oshkosh. So uh, Whitewater is at the top of the conference. Oshkosh is uh, a game back. And then Platteville and Lacrosse are uh, tied for third right now at two games back at three and two. Yeah, well, I think you make an interesting point that the WIAC team, uh, because of the common result with, uh, with Eau Claire, probably is ahead of St. Thomas. And uh, maybe if St. Thomas beats Bethel, that clears another at-large team out in the West. So w- where you could get a, a, maybe an 8-2 and two Oshkosh or an 8-2 and two Platteville to the table, but I, I don't uh, think it's very likely. And, uh, you know, the, the, I guess the problem with, uh, with all these teams right now is they have, uh, speaking of Oshkosh, Lacrosse, and um, Platteville, is they have um, what you'd quote-unquote call good losses uh, to each other. Uh, and sometimes outside the circle, the Oshkosh loss to Salisbury will give it an additional result against regionally ranked opponents. And the, and the WIAC traditionally has really strong strength of schedule. And someone like Oshkosh having a, a non-conference game against Salisbury, having another one against against Huntington, which is uh, ha- has a 6-2 and two record right now. Oshkosh is going to have a really nice strength of schedule number. So if it gets to the table, they would be an interesting case as a two-loss team. But as we've discussed, I just don't think there are going to be very many spots open for two-loss teams, partially in the West because of what happened in the Skyac nwc crossover games earlier in the season. If Linfield uh, wins wins its conference, Redlands is in really good shape because Redlands has a win over Linfield. They'll be to the board with one loss, so they'll probably be in front of of any team from the WIAC or MIAC. Yeah, so WIAC teams uh, who are looking for at-large bids uh, root for St. Thomas to beat Bethel and clear Bethel out of the way. Uh, should point out that Lacrosse, of course, is five and two against Division three opponents, but uh, they are five and three overall, or the three losses overall. That is something that will also be, you know, could be considered once you get that far down in the at-large discussion. UW Oshkosh at the moment has a uh, 627 strength of schedule, which is third out of the 240-plus, well, 230-plus Division III teams that uh, we measure strength of schedule for. And it will probably, from the looks of it, go up a little bit. They play River Falls, but, of course, they finish with Whitewater. And so uh, I think there's maybe just an opportunity for that to even get better. But I just don't see a really good path for an at-large team out of the WIAC this year. Well, and and part of the problem is... Um, that strength of schedule, where Oshkosh is third in D3, Platteville's fourth in D3, uh, Lacrosse is 12th in D3, but but Redlands is sixth. So again, teams blocking their path. You have Bethel, you have Redlands. Even if you have a really good WIAC team, that team from the West may not even get into the discussion until several rounds of playoff selections have already happened. And if you're interested in more about the uh, Division Three strength of schedule, you can find a calculation of it on our website. Go to the news menu and pick out strength of schedule. Keith, I'm going to let you. Uh, I'm going to toss it to you for the final word on this one. Yeah, I think this week you know, we we spent a lot of time building up. Man, what if this uh, Cortica Jug game between Ithaca and Cortland State in Week 11? in front of 42,000-plus fans at MetLife. What if it's two 9-0 and teams coming in, playing for the opportunity to be undefeated? Well, both of those teams lost on Saturday, but it might actually be a bigger game, a bigger showdown now, because those two teams may come in with one loss each, 
the second loss will probably eliminate a team from playoff contention. And uh, each each of them now behind another team in the conference. Union's already clinched Liberty League. Brockport can clinch with a win at Alfred next week. So Cortland and Ithaca may be playing for what essentially would be an at-large bid. And that may raise the stakes at all because not only do you win and beat your rival, but you send them, they send the rival home and you send yourself into the postseason. We really ought to go broadcast that game or something. I think it's a good idea. Let's schedule it. Let's do that. And this was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast number 256. That's season 13, episode 18, released on November 4th of 2019. Thanks for listening and keep an eye on the rest of our coverage throughout this week. If you like the podcast, you know, you can rate it in Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Stitcher or iHeartRadio or Spotify or, you know, Joe's Podcast Shack. Uh, That is how other football fans will find it. You can also leave comments for us on a specific episode on the blog page. You can reach us to talk more about Division 3 football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football and Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division 3 sports. Did you know? Yeah, you can join the conversation by registering to post with a legitimate email address at d3boards.com. Also, you can follow d3football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the d3football.com Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Also a lot of audio and thanks for the help from Frank Rossi, who had post-game interviews at two different sites on Saturday. Our theme music and a lot of the other music we use in this podcast comes from DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com. So thanks to our guests, uh, Jeff Berman and everybody else who we used audio from uh, in the course of this podcast. And of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. Yeah, uh, it's it's nice that we're making it sound like we're winging it. Right. I mean, this actually has been in the planning for a little while. So it, it is only better, I think, that, you know, instead of it being a potential battle for a number two seed or a number one seed, that it's an elimination game. Sure. Life or death. That seems a little harsh, but, uh, uh, you know, so I don't, I don't check my phone uh, while we're podcasting. It's just a little bit distracting. It's hard to, to stay on, uh, on topic if I'm playing on my phone. I see that you sent me the video of the Chicago uh, play, mm-hmm. and I maybe maybe under-described it a little bit because it's kind of cool to see a dude with number 52 rambling with the ball uh, toward the end zone, going airborne, and then someone hitting him and, and popping the ball loose. So I don't know if I under-described it or not, but I would have would have been cool to see the video just for the number 52 part, I think. Yeah, it would be nice to have the whole play for sure, too. Uh, I'm fairly certain they make the right call in that the ball doesn't cross the plane as the way it comes out and then it hits the pylon on the side uh, and knocks the pylon over. I'm fairly certain that that is a, a good indication that uh, he did not get in the end zone. Yeah, not only that, the ball bounces back. Uh, it stays inbounds and then and then bounces into the field of play and not into the end zone. So there's really no no discussion, right? The pylon does the work for you there. There'll be a time to uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time. <laughs>